Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. I wasn't even sure if I would um, be able to be on the air tonight, but I'm glad that I have uh, been able to make the effort in uh, making this happen. It seems like it's been a while since I was on the air last, but in actuality it hasn't. But as time goes by, sometimes it does seem a little bit longer. But, uh, you know, as I've said before from a previous podcast episode, uh, I don't know if it was this series or from another uh, previous series, that I usually try to podcast at least two days out of the week usually at the start of the week and at the end of the week. So it does give me enough uh, in-between time to uh, get prepared um, after finishing up one segment and then on to the uh, next. But nonetheless, it's uh, you know certainly great to be back on the air. I know I've said that a lot, but it is good to be back on the air because, number one, I enjoy podcasting, and two, I enjoy sharing with you all, my fellow Ardent 101 listeners, information that is relevant and useful given that, okay, if we did learn something before about a famous event or a particular person, and just when we think we learned everything there was to learn based upon what the textbooks told us years ago, we've come to the realization that uh, the textbooks themselves didn't always get everything right. So uh, some of you are probably wondering, where are we going now in this uh, series uh, the Victory with No Name, uh, the Native American Defeat of the First American Army. Well, we will um, begin with another uh, two-part series, but this time we will be talking about uh, building a nation on Indian land. So uh, this uh, podcast segment will be the first of a two-part series uh, that pertains to building a nation on Indian land. Now, I know that pine may not seem like the most um, pleasant of titles, uh, given know, what we've learned history-wise and how uh, tensions between both parties over land, not just land, but how it was to be used. Um, You know, we did learn a lot from the previous podcast episode uh, as to uh, how each side viewed land. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, for the Indians, land was something that belonged to everyone. It, It wasn't just one set of people. People from all different backgrounds did need, you know, did need to learn how to uh, coexist with one another. They needed to learn how to, um, how do you, you say it? They needed to learn how to um, not only just have alliances, but also needed to uh, stick with one another through the best of times and the most challenging of times. Whereas for the Americans, or I should, I should say the land speculators and the government officials, land was more of an individual uh, matter. So in other words, we could sum it up by saying for the Indians, it was us, we, ourselves with land. But for the Americans, it's going to become more about I, me, myself. On the other hand, though, it might be fair to say that for the government, there does have to be a formal process in how to go about acquiring land, which could be us, we, ourselves. But when it comes to distributing out land, in the case of land speculators, that's where we see that I, me, myself mentality. So in this uh, next uh, podcast episode, which will be the first of a two-part series on um, building land on, or building a nation on Indian land, uh, this episode we will uh, learn about how much debt 
the United the United States government had uh, prior to 1787, uh, especially in, in 1783, given that was the year that the uh, American Revolution came to an end with that uh, Treaty of Paris. We will also learn about how the U.S. government went about um, moving forward and opening up uh, new territory. We will also learn as to whether or not George Washington himself was a veteran speculator. And we also will learn um, about uh, land ordinances in general that uh, occurred prior to the most famous one in 1787. So I think it's time to say that we better hit this show on the road before it's too late. So here we go with our leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment of the victory with no name, the, the Native American defeat of the first American army by Colin G. Calloway. So here we go, folks. Um, how did the United States government want to go about moving forward and opening up new territory? Well, for one, government officials feared that if all new territory was opened right away, that the opening of the new territory itself would would be uh, an eye-opening for an endless array of settlers whom held no official legal title to any lands that they said were actually claimed by their own behalf when, in fact, they never were to begin with. So, in other words, maybe the U.S. government wants to have some regulation as to how this, not only with regards to how this process is going to take place, but really who it, who ought to be entitled to have land versus someone whom does not have any real stake. And what I mean by not having any real stake is that if you're not a speculator, you know, land speculators have money. And by having money, not only does that mean connections, resources, it means that you have a compelling reason to um, invest in land uh, west of the Appalachians. But if you don't have any money, we're not going to say that you can't go, but at the same time, if you are not of the um, upper tier um, rank in society, then what are you exactly going to have to offer that's going to have any true um, long-term merit? So we have to think to ourselves, okay, who do we really want in, but who do we not? And that is a dilemma from within. So the other part to this uh, question was that I think is worth sharing is that, uh, secondly, the process for opening up territory has to be an orderly one, meaning the needs of all individuals were required to be set aside. Okay, so if you're the Joneses and the Smiths and you don't, have any, you know, what we might think of as hard money, like silver or gold, or just, if you're not there, in the, if you're not a part of that upper tier um, society, if you're not a part of, say, the gentry or just upper middle class, then we're going to have to um, set your needs aside and take into consideration those who have uh, money at hand. They're going to uh, need to take uh, first priority because they have more to offer. So, yes, the needs of all individuals are going to have to be set aside, while government officials can also conduct formal business in the forms of surveying all the lands 
before any selling or settling can take place. So yes, they can certainly um, conduct business with land speculators, but even the, the land speculators themselves, while yes, their needs are going to come first over, say, a, a commoner, even the land speculators are going to have to um, hold off um, until all necessary surveying uh, can be done. And after all surveying is done, then the process can take place uh, that involving the selling and official settling into new territory. Now, I did mention earlier how we were going to learn about um, exactly where the U.S. government stood uh, debt-wise uh, shortly after the uh, Revolutionary War came to an end via the uh, Treaty of Paris. Well, in 1783, the U.S. government had around $40 million in debt. That pales in comparison to what um, Congress is dealing with debt-wise in today's world, not to get political, but, um, but uh, Congress is dealing with debts that are probably... Um, in the trillions, at least. That's a far, um, to have been 40 million in debt in 1783 was a lot of money. But we must keep in mind that um, the majority of that debt was uh, Revolutionary War related, uh, given that Britain, uh, given that rather France, I should say, France and Spain and uh, Dutch uh, banks had lent us money. So obviously we've got to pay those two nations and uh, the Dutch banks back, and then we have states' debts as well, too. So, and then think about this, too. We, uh, there are still those whom owe the British government money. So, it's a, so this 40 million isn't confined to just one thing, it's confined, it's con rather, it's centered around a whole host of factors that pertain to um, the post revolution what we now know is the start of the post-Revolutionary War era, but debt that has not been um, fully eradicated, or I should say erased. So the big question is, okay, if we have all this debt, are there any powers that Congress has to um, modify the problem? Well, I hate to say this, but in 1783, the United States government, under the Articles of Confederation, uh, which you know had to be scrapped a few years later, and thank goodness it happened when it did. Because if it hadn't been scraped, it hadn't been scrapped when it had. Um, who's to say that the United States would have uh, been able to have even functioned going forward as a country, um, given where we're at now, 236 years later? But in 1783, the United States government, under the Articles of Confederation, lacked the power to impose taxes. So if the Articles of Confederation lacks the power to impose taxes, what is its only source of money coming from? The only source of money that's readily available is the money that is that was based upon the land given from Britain at the Paris Treaty. That is land south of the Great Lakes, including territory north of Florida. All of that's great, but it's only for short-term um might be seen as what we might think of as like short-term success, short-term stability, rather. Prior to the Revolutionary War, many of the 13 states held claims. And what I mean by claims, folks, is like, say, they held, um, they had stakes in large tracts, or I should say acreage of western lands. 
Virginia being the largest of the 13 states, as we all know, Virginia might as well have stretched all the way to the Great Lakes. You know, you know, Virginia went into present-day West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan. So Virginia, being the largest of the 13 states, turned over all her territory north and west of the Ohio River to the Confederation Congress. Massachusetts and New York turned over their claimed territory. Those states whom claimed territory northwest of the Ohio River enabled Congress the means to pay off debts and create money by selling those lands to its people. Okay, see, you know, yes, we do know that under the Articles of Confederation that the states did operate as separate entities. They were all distrustful of anything that the central government um, wanted to impose but yet could not impose because there were no um, provisions giving the central government the power to impose any tax, no matter how big or small the proposal was for uh, generating essential revenue. But thank heavens the states were kind enough to put aside their personal interests and forego vast uh, sums of um, land acreage. And, of course, Virginia being the largest had, oh, probably, I, I think Virginia ended up uh, giving away half a million acres at most and giving all that um, land to the government. I'm not sure what it would have come out to uh, money-wise, but obviously it was much-needed um, money for the, um, for the government under the Articles of Confederation to be able to pay off whatever existing amount of debt it could pay off given that the government had around $40 million in debt. How about this question here? Uh, was George Washington himself a land, a veteran land speculator? Yes, he was. Washington himself was one of those speculators whom regularly had invested in the Ohio Territory, given he personally held vast land properties there prior to the Revolutionary War. Remember, he held uh, land in what we now know as present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He held land... Um, in various uh, parts of Ohio, uh, and fair to say he would have held um, land property, um, a land property or two, what we now know as West Virginia, given that West Virginia borders in between uh, Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania. So George Washington, folks, does own land outside of Virginia. And of course, when I think of a famous Virginian who owned land in what we now know as present-day Ohio, I think of uh, Robert Carter, or I should say Robert, a.k.a. King Carter. And the reason he was referred to as King Carter was because his land holdings went as far west as present-day Ohio. He, At one time, folks, he was the richest landowner in North America. He owned half a million acres. His land um, holdings went into uh, the Shenandoah Valley, his land holdings probably went into Western PA, what we now know as Pittsburgh, into West Virginia, but it went as far away west as present-day Ohio. So it just goes to show you, when we look at maps of, of uh, the 13 colonies in the 18th century, and even before, of course, Georgia being the last of the 13 colonies that was established in 1733, but looking at maps even in the 17th century, we have to be reminded that... Um, that the states that we know of today, they weren't properly established per their boundary lines. Is Was that a good thing? 
I don't know, but it, but we just have to be reminded that not that the states didn't automatically get their shapes like what we see on modern day maps. Going westward for Washington wasn't so much about establishing a settlement, but going westward going westward for Washington was essential for various reasons. I know for one, um, national security purposes, but uh, going westward also meant binding America from west to east via land and commerce. How about a linkage networks of inland waterways by means of canals? And we have to be constantly reminded, folks, that whenever we think of canals in America, let's think of George Washington. After all, he is the father of uh, canals in America. Uh, Washington, even before the Revolutionary War broke out, Washington um, had invested money in the Potomac Canal Company that um, that sought to um, establish a canal network along the Potomac River. Unfortunately, it did not um, succeed. It turns out that, uh, that the Potomac River, uh, where he wanted the canal to go, uh, the currents were very strong, and there were also areas where the canal, uh, where the Potomac River was shallow to where boats simply could not work their way up and down um, uh, various uh, sections of the river. So that endeavor failed, but it did not stop Washington from preaching the importance of canals, given that he knew there had to be a significant means of linking west to east via inland waterways uh, in other words, we needed to find ways to get people from point A to point B, goods from point A to point B, without always having to rely on um, on the coastal villages and towns, but also without having to rely on roads, because Washington knew that roads could not always be reliable, given how unpredictable uh, the weather could be at any moment's notice if a bad storm came through. Uh, those dirt roads could be washed out to where it might take two or three weeks before it's safe to even um, travel along um, along a, uh, a dirt clay road. So it's very important that we be reminded of the limitations that there were with transportation when our forefathers were living, but we should also be reminded that uh, that they did envision some very unique things like inland waterways. Unfortunately, George Washington did not pass away before the Erie Canal was ever um, built and completed, but had he been alive to have seen the Erie Canal, he would have been in awe of just how of just how magnificent it truly was, and still is to this day, even for recreational purposes and uh, for means of tourism. Uh, what did the uh, Confederation Congress establish in 1784 regarding territory uh, west of the Ohio River? Well, the Confederation Congress created a committee chaired by Thomas Jefferson, which involved forming plans for dividing and spreading out national territory to creating a layout for all future development of territory west of the Ohio River. Okay, so, you know, here again, uh, when I read this book, I, I had to remind myself that the Confederation Congress did do some good things. Um, for the amount of time that it existed, but as we all know, there had to be something better to replace the Confederation uh, Articles of Confederation, given what um, 
happened, in, especially in 1786 with Shays' rebellion and other um, acts of um, violence that uh, resulted in what we know in today's time as extremism, where, thank heavens, men like George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison, they came together and realized, look, we need something different, not just for the short term, but for the long term, because if we don't get it right this go-around, how is America really going to exist as an as an independent nation? So, yes, I do remind myself that the Confederation Congress did do some unique things, and this is another one of them. So, um, although the Confederation Congress had already prohibited all individuals from engaging in unlawful acts with regards to public lands, come summer of 1784, George Washington uh, toured uh, western lands only to come upon intruders encroaching onto territory nearby uh, the Indian side of the Ohio River. And when he encountered intruders, folks, could he? does this mean that he encountered um, Americans? Yes. He encountered American settlers, folks, whom were not given permission to go uh, not only just past the Appalachian Mountains, but to establish a settlement or establish villages past the Ohio River. So Washington is deeply upset by the fact that there were individuals whom deliberately violated what Congress had already put into place. Congress had said, look, we're, we prohibit any individual from engaging in unlawful acts with regards to public lands. So in other words... What gives you the right to go into um, territory or Western territory without our permission? If you don't have permission, don't go. But of course, uh, one might say even in today's time, and they probably could have said it back then, you can't legislate stupidity. But Congress will find some other uh, solutions here that I'll mention here soon that will be a little bit more effective than this one. So, uh, yes, Washington is very upset by the fact that there are individuals deliberately violating what Congress had already put into place. The, we, need, we need to be reminded that expansion, westward expansion, could not be an instantaneous thing, but it has to be a formal process. In other words, not everybody can um, leave whenever they feel like le leaving uh, within the 13 states and just go uh, westward into what we would have known at the time as Ohio Territory and what eventually would become Indiana Territory, Michigan Territory. We just can't have everybody come flock westward at once. Because if we did, it's going to lead to further violence along the frontier with Indian uh, nations. And does the government even have the power to stop Indian raids? No. The only thing that, um, if any army of uh, troops are out there, they're there to simply uh, police the frontier and, and engage in defensive mode strategies, but they can't do anything really offensively or special teams. What made uh, the 1785 land ordinance unique? Okay, so now we've got, it looks like now we're going to try something different compared to what uh, happened the year before. Well, for starters, this ordinance, like other ones before, did prohibit all illegal movings into the Western Territory. 
and demanded all intruders leave immediately. However, unlike other ordinances, the 1785 ordinance allowed for surveying to selling all territory northwest of the Ohio River, including when the United States government obtained um, title from Indian tribes. Land to the north of the Ohio River required being surveyed, as well as getting divided up into squares prior to any occupation. I'm sure some of you are thinking, getting divided up into squares, what does this mean? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because we're going to get to this here now. The 1785 uh, Land Ordinance Law specified that surveyors shall go forward in dividing Northwest Territory into townships. Any of you know what a township is? I know most of you probably do, but I'm sure some of you don't. But for those of you who don't know what townships are, I, I will go ahead and tell them um, to you. A township, or I should say townships, refers to areas of land or division of a county which is formed into a unit of local government. Now, uh, townships, if we want to get really uh, fancy, um, a township is um, six miles uh, square. So if you do six miles square, that's 640 acres or about 2.59 square kilometers. These were uh, lines running north and south, and a township was further divided into 36 sections of one square mile. So 640 acres, that means it's placed in a north-south uh, direction. Uh, you have what are called rows, uh, known as ranges, distances from one end uh, to the other. So I'm sure some of you probably hear of if, whenever you hear of a place, like I know there's a place in Pennsylvania not far from Erie called Cranberry Township, PA. Uh, so basically it's a, um, it's a division of a, of a county, like Cranberry Township is a division of a uh, county that has its own unit of uh, local government. Of course, the county that you live in has its own local government, but if you lived in a township uh, within a county, then the township itself will have its own local government, and then, of course, the township and the uh, county governments have to uh, decide um, who has rights to what areas of jurisdiction, whom doesn't, and if there is a legal dispute that, okay, that that the township and the government, county government, government might not be able to come to a proper agreement terms on, then obviously you have to take that up with the uh, proper court jurisdiction. So, Yes, so this 1785 land ordinance is uh, now getting into something big and what we know as uh, townships. And townships still do exist today, folks. You'd be surprised to know that there are many uh, places in America where uh, there are um, townships. Is it fair to say the 1785 land ordinance was very effective? Uh, I would say yes. Unlike previous ones before, the 1785 Ordinance established a uniform pattern behind land settlements and land ownership on the grounds by which the government surveyed, measured, to dividing land into squares in its mission going westward. So in other words, it's one thing to say on paper, well, we prohibit um, 
any unlawful entry into Western territory without the permission of the government. If you don't want uh, unlaw any kind of unlawful territory, then you do need to uh, obviously take things at a different approach. You need to survey. You need to um, do all of your homework first before going about, you know, selling lands and not just selling lands, but but go about promoting the encouragement of going uh, westward. So 640 being the set number per 36 sections of one square mile via acreage. It turns out, folks, that 640 acres was the minimum purchase at a dollar an acre. You know, you would think, oh, a dollar an acre doesn't seem like much. But at 640 acres, do you think most people could afford to invest in 640 acres of land with regards to uh, settling in a township? No. This um, set minimum number served as a reminder that Congress did not foresee selling vast land tracts to people of lower societal rank. So if you're a commoner in the lower middle class or lower uh, working class of society, you're probably just better off staying put where you're at. Maybe even for the average middling family, too, who's going to be making about in colonial times leading up to the American Revolution, the average middling family is making 12 pounds a year, which, you know, is a respectable amount of money, but it's not, um, but it's not one of those, um, how do you call it? It's not one of those situations where the average middling family can say, well, let's just use up all of our money that's left. Okay, if we've used two pounds out of the 12 pounds, that means we still have, um, about 83% left of our um, year's uh, savings, let's just go um, blow it on um, land west of us because we're not happy where we're at. Well, as nice as that may sound, 12 pounds, um, that could, uh, how you say, if you invested all your money, um, who's not to say that it'll take a little bit longer before you get your money uh, back and also be back on the right foot. So basically, the only people that are really going to um, be getting vast land tracts or vast uh, tracts of land are those whom have the money to invest, being the land speculators, gentry, uh, upper middle class. Really, those are the people who can fork it out. Uh, during uh, the Revolutionary War's duration, uh, had the Continental Congress offered sums to soldiers as a means of re-enlisting in return for uh, receiving land. You know, I've often had to remind myself, and whenever I've, my wife and I have gone to Williamsburg, we've uh, learned, uh, per those whom are uh, reenactors, uh, interpreters, they uh, have often told us that um, the best way to lure uh, someone to come in and enlist is by saying to to say, fellow John Smith, listen, John, if you come and join our cause, you will not only be required to serve three years, but if you serve your um, country in three years and after the war's end, we will promise you and your family um, a couple hundred acres of land uh, west of um, west into what we might think of as, you know, Ohio Territory. 
so we have to keep in mind, folks, that um, that this was done primarily as a means of um, boosting morale, boosting uh, the numbers. Because think about it, folks, we don't have telephones. We can't call up and say, "We, Mr. Jones, we need your son to come out and fight for us. But they have to offer some kind of incentive to get people, especially young men, to fight, not just for um, a one-year term, but for long term. So, uh, so it is fair to say that the answer is yes, that during the Revolutionary War's duration, the Continental Congress did, in fact, offer sums to soldiers as a means of re-enlisting in return for receiving land. The Continental Congress went as far as offering, here's a breakdown in, um, in numbers based upon uh, rank. The Continental Congress went as far as offering 1,100 acres for a major general, 850 for a brigadier general, 500 for a colonel, 400 for a major, 300 for a captain, 200 for a lieutenant, and 100 uh, for non-commissioned officers and privates, that is acreage. But here's a dilemma, folks. Here you can, you know, you can make these promises to um, soldiers regardless of their rank and file in the um, Continental Army. But the problem is that during the Revolutionary War, what did Congress not have to offer? Land. I think Congress knew that, but the real incentive was to get men to fight, not just short term, but long term. But they had to have something to focus on because if they didn't have anything to focus on, then how can it be fair to say that the mission of us, we, ourselves can exist? Congress has to find ways to to uh, block out in the minds of the soldier the I-me-myself mentality. The end of the Revolutionary War saw most veterans lacking in means to move west. And it is fair to say, most veterans being probably your average private soldier, an average soldier who's in a middling family, they just don't have the means to go west. But what did they do with their documents that were uh, given to them? They sold their documents at minimum value to men whom had money readily available, it seems like, at all times. And who do you think those men uh, that had money readily available at all times were the land speculators. How many sets of people uh, stood in Congress's way, including uh, land companies, with regards to obtaining control of lands throughout the Northwest Territory? How many sets of people do you all think stood in Congress's way? How about two? Indians already occupying the territory and those settlers who migrated there illegally. Samuel H. Parsons, who, is a, who was a Harvard graduate, he was a Continental Army officer, and he was uh, currently an Indian Treaty Commissioner from Connecticut. He didn't take very kindly to uh, the settlers who migrated uh, westward illegally. He viewed the existing settlers as unruly people whom lacked character to not having any respect for authority. 
They were only looking after themselves. They were not interested in the larger mission. Well, I think it's fair to say that even in today's time, um, it's there's number one, there's division, but two, it's always fair to say that there are multiple groups of people judging one another, and sometimes it's not always for the right reasons. Well, it just so happened, even in the post-Revolutionary War era, that um, those whom had fought, those whom had made the ultimate sacrifices, perhaps were frowning upon those whom, say, in some instances, pardon me, perhaps some of those uh, individuals who came uh, westward illegally may have already may have been Revolutionary War veterans, but maybe the vast majority whom were there Ill- illegally weren't. So it could be a double-edged sword, but for Samuel Parsons, and I'm sure that he was not the only one who viewed it this way, but yes, he did uh, view the existing settlers as unruly people, people whom simply did not have respect for authority, boundaries. For those people in the minds of Samuel Parsons, they represented us, we, they represented I, me, myself, pardon me. And for Samuel Parsons, he knows that if the government is going to do things right in terms of acquiring land and distributing it out properly, that there has to be a system. But in order for the system to work, there has to be surveying first. And once the surveying is done, then the proper steps can be taken for uh, selling land to the overall eventual settlements onto new territory. Now, before 1790, 1791, take two for just one moment, folks. In order for me to stay awake, I better drink some water. But you know, um, but which is not a bad thing at all. But prior to 1790, 1791, former Continental Army officers uh, conducted expeditions across the Ohio River and went about burning to destroying unwelcomed settlers' dwellings, as well as ordering them back across the river. Expulsion of unwanted, illegal settlers sought to help better preserve peace with Indians residing past the Ohio River. Now, I can't imagine if I was an illegal settler. I've already you know, established my home, and now all of a sudden I have government officials via uh, former Continental Army officers conducting expeditions, but all of a sudden coming into my home or even a village, let alone of, say, five or six log cabin-style homes, let's put it that way, all of a sudden these officials are destroying my dwellings, or destroying, yes, my dwellings and that of my other friends, but doing so without my consent doing so without any notice. Yes, that is unfortunate. Is it fair to say that maybe both parties are at fault here? Well, it, it is fair to say that the uh, settlers who came illegally should have known better not to have um, migrated westward without the consent of the government. But secondly, we also have to wonder, could government officials have uh, handled the situation better without destroying the the home or the homes or the dwellings, I should say. Yes, but at the same time, how are government officials going to be able to persuade those people 
to vacate their uh, premises. I mean, they simply just can't tell them, you know, look, you got to leave, and we, and we mean it. You need to leave now. I'm sure that some uh, that some illegal settlers probably did try to put up a fight with government officials. Uh, it wasn't mentioned in this book, but I probably it would be fair to say that uh, many of them did go without um, not having put up some kind of a fight in terms of uh, preserving um, what was sacred to them, but um, unfortunately they lost that battle. The presence of Indians, if we think the presence of uh, illegal settlers posed a, a serious threat, the presence of Indians posed a more serious obstacle versus unwanted illegal settlers. Any means of offering Indians a fair and proper peace accord still meant doing what, folks? It still meant requiring solutions resulting in their surrendering all ancestral lands or lands throughout the Northwest Territory. So yes, you can offer a fair and proper treaty all you want, but what is it going to have to involve, folks? It's going to have to involve, if you're on the um, American government side, you've got to hope that the Indians will find ways to budge and say, okay, we'll give in, we'll give you the land that you want. 1785 and 1786, U.S. government officers, or I should say treaty commissioners, went about reading aloud uh, treaties they read aloud treaties, folks. They didn't um, do what we call uh, traditional uh, practices in today's time where they um, ratified treaties with a two-thirds uh, majority uh, vote. So we didn't um, convene in the chamber. We have government officials out on um, Northwest uh, Territory, we should say, past the Ohio River, and they are verbally reading aloud treaties to many Ohio Indian tribes by specifically stating that their lands were by right of conquest or that their lands, that, that the lands that they are um, inquiring about uh, were given to them based upon um, ownership from a previous generation. The uh, land... Um, or I should say the uh, government officers, or I should say uh, commissioners, or treaty commissioners, they were uh, Richard Butler, George Rogers Clark, and Arthur Lee, whom is uh, Arthur Lee being related to the Lees of Virginia. They um, were the uh, treaty commissioners, and they all opposed the Indians' objections or stances behind how land itself got passed down to them. So, in other words, uh, the, the treaty commissioners don't, um, they don't see land as something that belongs to everybody. They see land as only belonging to those whom have the money to invest in the land, those whom are of uh, high prominent status, those whom have a proper stake for business reasons. So, really, for these uh, three men, or I should say the... Um, treaty commissioners, what the land that they're wanting, I mean, yes, the ultimate goal is to get the land in the Northwest um, Territory, what we now know is really, we could say, Northwest Ohio along the Maumee River, but in the meantime, 
yes, um, the Northwest Territory, you know, including the, the entirety of Ohio, but the treaty commissioners know that they can't get all of Ohio, or what we now know of as Ohio just yet. They are wanting um, all Indian land from southern and eastern Ohio as a means of securing peace. They're hoping that this could um, um, lead to a, a, a viable compromise solution. So when I think of southern Ohio, I might be thinking of like present-day Cincinnati, uh, present-day Athens, Portsmouth, the area known as Hocking Hills, uh, eastern Ohio. I would think of like you know present-day Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, think of um, uh, other areas like right along the uh, Ohio-Pennsylvania line, like um, Steubenville, uh, East Liverpool, Harrisville, Saint Clairsville, um, all of those areas of that border right along um, the Ohio-Pennsylvania line near uh, present-day Pittsburgh. I don't expect any of you all to know this uh, particular Indian's name, but um, I'll mention his name. Uh, he's a very important uh, figure. Who was Kekawa Pelathi? That's a tricky name, folks, to pronounce, but I'll pronounce that name again. Who was Kekawa Pelathi? Kekawa Pelathi. He was a Shawnee chief, often referred to as Captain Johnny. He widely opposed American tactic strategies involving any attempts at seizing Indian lands. He viewed encroachment of sacred land by outsiders as a direct peace violation. Captain Johnny, like other chiefs, only welcomed one group of Americans, folks. And who are they? the American um, Indian traders, a.k.a. the Indian agents, onto their lands for business purposes. But he adamantly opposed, like several other uh, chiefs, the masses from settling. And who are the masses? The settlers, just everyday, ordinary people whom don't work directly within the U.S. government. That's not to say that even the Indians can't trust some people within the U.S. government, but if but the only group of people they want in for proper business affairs are the uh, American traders, the Indian agents. And as for not why they don't want the masses being the settlers, it's because the settlers, their boundaries don't have any proper limits. Captain Johnny insisted that his people stay steadfast and strong in defending their country including ancestral ways of life. Avoid temptations big and small. In other words, if the government wants to offer you a treaty, you better think long and hard before getting snookered in. Don't fall for any kind don't fall for any kind of a bait uh, because if you do fall for bait, it'll be like the equivalent of being uh, scammed in today's time. Uh, did many Indians attend treaty meetings? between 1785-1786. No. The majority of the Indian tribes simply wanted nothing to do with them altogether and went as far as speaking out against those tribes whom attended treaty meetings. So if you were an Indian tribe and you attended a treaty meeting, you were definitely frowned upon by the other Indian tribes whom wanted nothing to do with it. They probably might as well have viewed you as a traitor or your tribe as traitors uh, committing an act of uh, treason of sorts. 
Uh, December 1786 saw Indian delegates from a handful of nations. Um, I picked a few of the of the many that uh, showed up, uh, but some of those um, tribes that uh, whom sent Indian delegates um, to this um, council meeting at Brownstown, uh, which is a, a Wyandotte town uh, near uh, present-day Detroit. Uh, such uh, de- delegates from such nations came like Iroquois, Shawnee, Huron, Ottawa. They all came um, to attend a council meeting at Brownstown, which was the Wyandotte town near Detroit, where they delivered to Congress a powerful message, a powerful message, folks, criticizing hostile policies behind making treaties with individual tribes, they also requested that the U.S. government meet directly with them in the spring of 1787, where talks could involve agreeing to a proper boundary line. Okay, folks, you know, the Indians want to compromise. They want to come up with some form of solution so that perhaps further escalations, further tensions could be avoided. By the time, though, that the Indians' message arrived into Philadelphia, what has Congress already begun uh, taking action on? Enacting the, another North, enacting another ordinance, but this time around it will be an ordinance that um, that we all, that we do know about and we've learned about, um, given that the textbooks told us about it, and um, it's come up and. Um, Man, it's come up um, quite a great deal. I mean, it's one of those things that isn't going to be, uh, that can't be forgotten. And, and I'll talk more about it when I'm on the air again uh, in the next um, ep- podcast segment episode. But I'll tell you right now, how about the Northwest Ordinance of 1787? But before we can, you know, talk about any of that, um, I do have this question to throw at you all. Uh, what took place on March 1st, 1786 at the Bunch of Grapes Tavern in Boston, Massachusetts. I don't expect any of you to know, and that's okay. But I do think the name of the tavern's pretty clever. The Bunch of Grapes Tavern. I don't suspect that there was a grape-eating contest. So we can certainly eliminate that. But uh, how about a handful or large number of Revolutionary War veterans assembling at this tavern where they went about forming the Ohio Company of Associates? An organization which sold stock. Okay, you know, of course, when we think of stock, we think of the stock market, stock brokers, and that's true. Uh, stock, we should be reminded that the term stock here refers to uh, a share or shares, units of equity ownership, um, to speculators, in this case, whom requested the government uh, for large sums, large sums of money for land acquisition matters. The Ohio Company of Associates members, folks, aimed to raise around $1 million in continental notes, aka paper money, and then proceed with buying 1.5 million acres of land from Congress with the main intentions of moving New England Continental Army vets into territory northwest of the Ohio River. Man, this seems like a really, really cool strategy here. The Ohio Company would buy land that the U.S. 
had won during the Revolutionary War, being the land south of the Great Lakes, by giving to Congress in return paper money used behind financing the war. I think this is a great uh, proposal, folks. But the only uh, problem I see here, or dilemma, is that the paper money may not have really any value. You know, paper money is tricky because it has value one day, and then it loses its value the following day. It may not even regain any kind of value for long-term end, or for what we call long-term sight. So uh, I think it's really great that this um, that these uh, former veterans have come together to come up with a plan that will help um, not only them, but help the government. But what looks uh, great on paper might not be uh, relevant to the uh, to the uh, party on the other side simply because they are just lacking the means to be able to um, fund um, the request that uh, was uh, bestowed upon them by the um, other uh, party. So it's a lot of um, a lot of uncertainty here still, but there uh, but we do have to determine how we're going to get there uh, when it's all said and done with. Well, we have covered, um, we've reached the end of this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, and we have certainly covered a lot of ground as always. And when I'm on the air again next, folks, we're going to uh, learn about some individuals who were, um, who were key associates, not just so much key associates, but they were uh, company directors of the um, Ohio Company of Associates. We're going to learn about... Um, learn about some uh, individuals who uh, played a vital role. We're also going to learn more about the um, Northwest Ordinance of 1787. We're going to basically go behind the scenes and learn how it uh, came into being and why it um, established a, um, why the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 established um, an essential uh, blueprint for um, national uh, westward expansion, or I should say just national expansion in general. So that's just some of the things that we will uh, learn about, but uh, when I'm on the air again next, we will certainly uh, discuss them. Uh, we will also probably we will also uh, learn a little bit about um, Arthur St. Clair. Well, uh, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.